Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I am your host and founder, Lori LeBay, and we have been doing this show since 2011. I just can't believe it. And our goal here is to shift dementia care from crisis to comfort around the world. So please subscribe today and listen and share, and you're going to learn new tick, um, new techniques and tips and resources on how to live graciously alongside dementia. And that's for people who are actually diagnosed, for family and friends, business professionals, researchers. Um, everyone is is welcome here. And we try, we try to talk openly because we all interact and um and have effect on one another when we're trying to care. So and I and I know this journey personally because my own mother lived with the disease for 30 years. So I get the guilt, the frustration, the anger, the exhaustion when caring for another person, but I also have been able to find this path of joy and purpose and 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 passion in terms of being present and really caring on an authentic level. It, it almost becomes a religious experience if you let it let it be. So listen and learn today. Now, before I introduce our guest today, I always like to do a shout out to a couple of organizations. The World Dementia Council is doing a survey on dementia-friendly um, programs. So they'd like to hear from you. You can go to alzheimerspeaks.com. I've got it right front and center this survey closes out the end of the month, so you're going to want to get that completed sooner than later um, and and help them hear what's going on around the world. Uh, the Memory Cafe directory, I love. I help bring those over from uh, the UK. We're up to about 800 of them now, and it's just fabulous how this grassroots um, technique for care and support has, has really uh really spread around the U.S. and other countries as well. And you can find more information to see if there's one next to you or maybe uh, maybe you want to start one up. You can go to memorycafedirectory.com for more information. And then Stall Catchers is a game where we can all play uh, this game and actually analyze real live Alzheimer's data. So you can go to stallcatchers.com to find out more information on that. And if you happen to be a business that's looking for help to expand your own brand footprint in the area of dementia care, um, reach out to me because we can help you do that by leveraging all of our different content platforms. Uh, Last, before I introduce uh, our guest today, I just want to thank Artist Senior Living. They've been so gracious at hosting me at a few of their different locations, and I'm looking forward to going out to Reading in Lexington, Massachusetts, November 13th and through the 15th. 
And then I will also be out in Alabama to their uh, East Alabama area on Aging uh, Alabama Cares Conference, November 20th through the 23rd. So if you're in any of those locations, um, come see me. I always love to, to hear from people. Now, today's topic, we're going to be talking about mental illness and dementia. And it's one that we don't hear a lot about, but I hear a lot of people discussing this and wanting more information. So I am thrilled to death that today we have Dr. Tammy West with us. She is the author of The Stress Club and Life Without the Monsters. And she has delivered hundreds of um, standing room only presentations to groups not only here in the U.S., but Australia, New Zealand, and the U.K. And guess what? Her most requested topic is really the story of hope um, that surrounds her mother's battle with mental illness and dementia. So, Tammy, welcome today. How are you? Thank you. I'm so wonderful, and you know I'm so excited to be here, so thank you for having me. Well, like I said, I'm very excited to have this conversation to set set things up. You know, I mentioned that your mom had both mental illness and dementia. Can you give us a little background on her dementia, like around what age did that start, and what were some of the the symptoms that you saw? It's funny you ask because had I not just picked up her medical records a few weeks ago, I thought, you know what, I want to really look and see what they, what they wrote about her, you know, what the notes were, what they said. I'm not sure I would have been able to answer that question because for me, the mental illness and the dementia were so connected. You know what I mean? They almost like just morphed together. But Mm -hmm. as I got the medical records and I was reading them, I think when they really started to think about this as a diagnosis, it was about in 2010. And some of the behaviors that were worsening for her is her noncompliance with self-care and medications um, and that kind of thing, becoming belligerent when asked to do certain behaviors. So that was sort of like the beginning behaviors that said to them, you know what, in fact, in those notes that I read, it said that they were going to have us do a psych evaluation and then also a, a dementia evaluation. And that's when we first went to the neurologist and started having her testing. So, yeah, it was in 2010. Okay. And, and okay. And just for our audience knowledge, your mom has, has since passed on. And yeah. um, so, again, our, our sympathy goes out. It's always hard to lose mm-hmm. a loved one, but I, I really appreciate you kind of standing up and talking about this story, because I think storytelling is the, the way we cut to the chase, and we really help mm-hmm. other people understand what might be going on in their own world and, and um, different techniques to be able to help them. So how, how did Thank your you. early life relationship, you know, with your mom affect you in, in how you dealt with her? Did she have mental illness um, throughout her life? Mm-hmm. She did, and I don't have, my sister and I laugh a lot because she has all these memories of the good and the bad things that went on when we were kids, but I really don't. I mean, I remember quite a bit of the bad, Um, but I remember, so my mom and my dad's marriage was pretty tumultuous, Um, but I remember, I remember the phrase um, nervous breakdown. You remember when we used to call it nervous breakdown? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. That was the phrase we used for people so I remember there used to be this talk of my mom having these nervous breakdowns, plural, 
And I remember there, like in my mind, I do remember there was a lot of crying when I was a child. I remember there was a lot of like sadness and despair. So I remember that as a child. Um, I remember that we would, so my dad was a musician and he was on the road all the time. And this is going to seem like it doesn't relate, but it kind of does. So we would, it was my sister and me and just my mom. And my mom always had this dream of just being a wife. And I don't mean just as in, oh, that's nothing. I just mean her dream was that, being a wife, being a mother. She wanted like eight or ten children. And then after she had my sister, and we were about a year apart, she couldn't have any more children. Um, So it was just the two of us, and my mother and my dad was gone all the time. So we would like – my sister remembers more about this than I do. We would just play. Like we wouldn't have real life when we were little. We would just play. And then when it was time for my dad to come home – we would rush around and clean up this horrific mess of a house. And so he left when I was 10 and my sister was 11. And so all of that despair, but also play and sadness, but also play when he left, she became what I call like a non-person. So she stopped caring for herself, um, our home. She stopped caring for us. Um, we had the health department called on us once because our, our yard and our house were so bad, the neighbors didn't know what to do. Um, she could not hardly function, except she did have to get a job. She had to care for us. I mean, you know, pay the rent. But sometimes our house, a couple times I remember our house got so bad that we just moved. So looking back on that, you know, I think that was sort of a hoarding, like an OCD type of behavior. But for most of her life, it was just depression. And I say just because that's what they said. She's depressed. She was on Prozac, but it just kept getting worse and worse. Um, That might have been more than you needed to know, but she just, when my dad left, her world just completely fell apart and the mental illness took over. And that became who she was. So that's who we worked with. Wow. Um, That had to impact your your mental health and, and what you thought was normal or not, I would imagine. Well, it did, and you and I chatted a little bit before because I didn't know if I had mentioned it to you. But, of course, this is about mom and not me, but all those things we grew up with and the the fear because she also was just – her depression was so deep that, in her mind, it was the world against us. So Mm -hmm. we weren't safe. No one loved us. It was – we all slept together in the same bed, um, well, even through when I was a teenager because she could not bear – for us to be apart from her. So this all for me went into severe panic attacks, severe fear, and then my mental hospitalization in 1995. So it was just all so connected. So as, as, as things continue to progress, um, yeah, there was a lot of anger in me and resentment for, and I, and I do air quotes because of course I've let go of all that now, but um, what she did to us, you know, mm-hmm. and what she put us through. Um, so it was it was hard as she as she continued to progress, and it did affect us. My sister suffered yeah. as well. Yeah, sure. well, and I hear a, a lot of times um, families going through kind of a similar story, saying, "I can't take care of this person. I I mm-hmm. don't care. I, I've had to like draw the line in the sand here. This isn't healthy for me." What What do you say to those people? How did How did you? end up dealing with it and and drawing boundary lines and things. I would imagine you had a few of them in there. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I mean, as far as prior to you know this this 2010-ish area era when she began to to deal with the dementia, she as we grew older, you know, I moved out right after I graduated high school, um, and still suffered the way that I did with with the anxiety and the panic attacks and things. But my sister didn't what I call escape. And so what happened over the years is she and my sister basically lived together nearly her whole life. And that got so ugly. So I was able to set some boundaries um, with what I wouldn't want to, would and would not allow my mom to do. Um, sometimes she would call me 25 times a day and the messages would be, well, okay, I'm just going to sit over here and die since you don't love me. Well, okay, then the next time you see me, I might be dead. Well, you know, these are the kinds of messages I got. But my sister actually lived with her. And it got so bad at one point. She, and I told you I was going to be completely transparent, Mm -hmm. but she would pee on her floor. She would throw things at her head. Um, There was a point when she did live by herself, and she had a heart attack. Because, you know, all this anger and bitterness towards my dad, along with the mental illness, um, just escalated. And so she had a heart attack. And while she's in the hospital, my sister called and said, we need to go over to her house because she didn't pay her gas bill. The gas has been cut off. If they come back in to light the pilot light, they will call the health department. So we go over to her house. And I guess I hadn't been there in a while because what we found was absolutely unbelievable. We walked in. And, you know, I talked about the hoarding, the filth, the things that were there, but I saw this blanket and it was maybe a two foot mound of something. And when I went and took it off, it was trash beside her bed that she had simply, or beside her chair, that she had just covered up with a blanket. Um, My sister's cat was living with my mom. Um, The cat was dead. There were 10 ish disposable litter boxes that she would just open a new one, open a new one. There were bugs and maggots. I'm sorry if people are like hanging up now and saying, I'm not going to listen, but it was just so bad. So this is what my sister dealt with for years. And this is why, you know, it was so hard. I think you, you asked me at one point, how did her history affect dealing with the dementia? Mm -hmm. Because we were dealing with such behaviors that when she started um, when the dementia started to set in, it was difficult to look at any of those behaviors as anything as being evil and manipulative because we'd been dealing with them for so long. Sure. Because she battled with it all her life. And that, that makes make perfect. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, you know, everyone's normal is what they grew up with. And, mm-hmm. and it might not be our normal, but, uh, you know, it was definitely your normal. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, your home base. And, and I think that that's one of the important things that people really need to understand. I, I think when it comes to dementia, you know, everyone wants this and mental health, too. They want this guidebook of A to B to C to D. And this is how things are going to progress. And this is what you can expect. And, and neither of them do that. You know, they're very Mm-mm. spontaneous and, and everyone um you know, reacts differently um, if it's mental illness and or if it's dementia or if they're lucky enough to have both, you know, then you've, you've really got a complicated um, thing yeah. on your hands there. And so I think that's, again, one of the things I think it's so important to to be able to, to talk about these things. How, um, 
did when your mom got diagnosed, how how did your sister deal with all of that living with her? Did things change or did they kind of just kind of carry on the way they, they always did? And then I want to get to, you know, how you dealt with it. Yeah. Yeah. My sister really did have a tough time because um, it, the, the height of the really bad stuff was when I told you she, you know, she started walking around her house without pants on, you know, throwing things, all that kind of stuff. And it was at that point that and this was still not we weren't even thinking of dementia but what we did at that point my sister said you know I can't do this anymore um and I was trapped she did live with me for a short period of time that's a whole different story but I tra- I speak and travel for a living so I couldn't have her live with me and so my sister just said you know we need to to get another psych evaluation so what we decided to do was have her, and, and the doctor agreed, we had her admitted to a geriatric psychiatric unit, and we said, look, you know, my sister was like, there are, this cannot be just depression. This is not the way people act with simple depression. They don't do these things. You know, she was being vindictive with my sister's children, and it was just getting worse and worse. And Lori, do you know what they said about my mom before they discharged her? No, I can't even imagine. Okay. But and I'm going to say a cuss word, okay? But it's not because mm-hmm. I'm cussing. It's just what the psychiatrist said to us, just distraught daughters, especially my sister. I'm sorry, but it is depression, and your mother also sort of has can't get her shit together syndrome. That's what he said. Um, so, so respectful. <laughs> that was no help. <laughs> mm-hmm. That did nothing to help us. So. My sister was like, okay, so we need to move her out. So mm-hmm. we founded an apartment um, a couple miles down the road and moved her into that apartment. And from there, as you can imagine, things got worse because then there was, you know, at least with my sister, um, there was a little bit of being able to manage her medications. Um, she was able to keep the rest of her house in order, except for the bedroom where my mom was living, which is another story here in a minute, but, um, she, 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 it was time to move her out and then Mm -hmm. it got worse. So we moved her into the apartment. Um, and my sister from there, I mean, it's still, you know what, she is still kind of recovering from this um, whole thing with mom, but she's doing better. She's definitely doing better. I would almost think that there's some post-traumatic stress syndrome. I mean, because of, I, I, I mean, it was, just always it wasn't just part of the time I mean it was just a constant um, thing and then to have to readjust to kind of a new normal whatever that Mm -hmm. is I I would I mean and I'm no I'm I'm not a medical person at all but I I can't even imagine the trauma or maybe I can imagine the trauma and that's why I say that Um, but I would think that would be extremely difficult and and um, understandable you know, for her to still be processing mm-hmm. through things, um, you know, yeah. how we, how we grow up is, I mean, it really is something I think that no matter if it's good, bad, or ugly, it's something that people process all of their life. It kind of comes up like, um, just like with grief, when someone passes, you know, you might think, okay, it got past that wave, but then typically there's another one and the waves change but they're, yes. they're still, you still have those moments. Is it similar to that, would you say? I think so, yeah. And I think that 
my sister thought that when my mom moved out that she would everything would change for her and she would suddenly be fine and but it was much more it's still much more complicated than that because the damage had been done and just because mom wasn't in her home did not mean that all those things she'd been through suddenly were just roses and rainbows it just didn't work out that way so yeah yeah she's getting there and um it's just it's just going to take some time you're right it is waves yeah well and I think with all of us you know when we we think we've hit rock bottom like for your sister saying I can't do this anymore mom's got to move we then we we all think that we're going to bounce up to the top I mean that's the goal Mm -hmm. if we this it's gonna you know it's almost like our we think it's a silver bullet and there is no silver bullet for pretty much any of our situations and and it's a process you know it's a journey uh that we have to have to move along with now for you how did you deal with with boundaries with your mom you moved out and you know you were traveling Mm -hmm. but I would imagine that you know even like with the phone calls and things like that I hear from others that you know, they, they call constantly, you know, and, and pretty soon they, mm-hmm. you know, they stop answering the phone and will only answer at certain times of the day, you know, for some people, others continue to, to answer constantly. Um, how did, how yeah. did you deal with it all? And I think I look at it differently because when I think of, and I need everybody to know too, that, that I am not an expert and, and expert in, in Alzheimer's or dementia or how to, to manage anything. That's, I'm not an expert in that. So everything I'm sharing is just from, from my perspective and my experiences. But when I think of boundaries, um, I think we all tend to think of boundaries as ways to, like, establish relationships, but it's also about sort of teaching the other person what you will and won't allow, right? So, so it's sort of to shape and let others know how to treat you. And so before – like the dementia, um, I set boundaries with my mother, but I had, I guess the benefit of being in the mental hospital was that I learned how to do some of these things. So for example, my mom wanted me to do something one time with my sister that I didn't agree with. And she threw the guilt, she was cussing. And I was able to say, you know, mom, I'll talk to you later when we can have you know, a regular conversation. So at that point, setting boundaries was about me and about her, you know, showing her what I would and wouldn't let her do. Um, I had made decisions along through the years with the mental health and just her overall as to what I would allow her to do when I would go to her house, how long I would stay and all that stuff. So it was a lot about her and also me. So when when the dementia came about, I think when the dementia came about and things started changing and I had to look at it differently because before the, the manipulative phone calls, um, the, the aggressive behavior, um, the guilt ridden messages, the, all those, those things before it was, she's doing this to hurt me. She's doing this to annoy me. I'm not going to allow her to do this. I'm not going to allow this to happen, but now it's different because she wasn't really doing – now, some of those behaviors changed, but a lot of them, she, I really believe she wasn't doing on purpose. 
So now mm-hmm. the boundaries were all about me. It wasn't about teaching her anything because she wasn't going to take a lesson from anything I was doing. She wasn't going to stop calling me just because I didn't answer because she didn't even realize she was doing it. She just did it. Mm-hmm. So I looked, I looked at those different – so I decided that I would answer, you know, like, I don't know, X number of phone calls a day um, is what I would do. Um, another behavior I think about was when we would go visit her because she was eventually in assisted living, um, which I think we'll talk about in a minute. There was still food all over the floor. I mean, they would clean once or twice a week, but she still was just, there was just no cleanliness at all. But I knew that it wasn't sort of a, like a malicious or any type of behavior. She just, that's just what she did. So the boundaries I would do there is either clean it up or just, you know, I had to process it differently. Um, the, the incontinence, you know, before it really felt like we would go a place and she would just like pee on herself like years ago. But this was different. Now I knew that I, that I would just take her to the bathroom. So the boundaries were how – I think the thing I had to say to myself, and I hope people will, will do this, is here's, here are the situations that are most bothersome to me, and go ahead and have in my mind how I will handle them before they even happen. So I, I think mm-hmm. that's the best that I can do, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I like that you said, you know, that the boundaries were for you because really boundaries are for ourselves because we can't change anybody if they, if they decide that they want to work with us or, or whatever, but, but many people don't, they're just on a little path and they'll either continue to try to b- break those boundaries on you and change you back mm-hmm. to what the relationship was. But it, those boundaries really are about self. And I think sometimes we, we don't look at them that way, but it really is about self-care and self-preservation when we're, when we're doing that. Um, in, in my eyes, again, I'm not a medical um, professional, but that's definitely how, how I know I have chosen mm-hmm. to look at them when I've made the boundaries. Well, and, I, and I, oh, go ahead. No, well, I should say, especially when you're dealing with a, someone in your life with, with a form of dementia, because you, you know, the, the things that they're doing, oftentimes are, are not anything you're going to be able to even try to change. And so it is about you and your peace and your, your own mental health and the way that you talk to yourself and treat yourself. And, but those decisions need to be made beforehand so that the emotions don't get so escalated when that stuff happens. And I'm not saying I was perfect because I was not, <laughs> but <laughs> at least I had some parameters in mind before I went over to her place. Yep. Yep. And I, and I think that that's important to say too, because none of us are perfect. We're not going to get it right all the time, but if we are conscious about our choices and our reactions and our boundaries, you know, we're less likely, you know, to have, uh, to have situations that we don't want uh, to to negatively react to. You know, to handle it in a right. different way or, or if it's even walking away or hanging up the phone, but not, not engaging um, and just saying, nope, uh, this is, this is it for me. <laughs> you know, on that. Yeah. I don't, I don't have to answer that 10th phone call. And, and, you know, and I was thinking too, one of the other, I guess it would be considered, I don't know if it's necessarily boundaries, but it's, it's something in there, just decisions, you know, the, the constant questions or the repeating yourself it was shocking to me sometimes even if she would be in the hospital which was a lot 
and she would ask the same question over and over again. And they would actually say, you just asked me that. And I'm thinking, okay, we're in a hospital. You surely you realize that that's going to happen. And so I remember one day when I made the decision, like I was taking her to the doctor and she must have said 10 times in just a couple of minutes, the sky is pretty, the sky is pretty, the sky is pretty. And I thought, well, okay, let me just take that as an opportunity to talk about the clouds. So I just decided whenever she said the same thing over and over, I would just take a different element of it and try to guide the conversation. Or if she asked the same question over and over again, I really had to make the mental decision to just answer it because saying you just asked me that, it didn't matter. It just made her feel bad. Yep. So anyway. Yeah. No, that's that's really true. And I I had the same thing with my mom. She didn't have the mental illness, but, you know, just that repeating. And it's, you know, you don't want to make a game out of it. You've got other things to do. And there were times I wasn't a gracious daughter either. And, you know, you feel same. really bad about yeah. that. And yeah. and then I came to this realization that my top priority in in dealing with my mom and and loving her was three simple things. Was she safe? Was she happy? Was she pain free? Those were my oh. those were my goals every time I talked to her. And that that taught me to react differently because mm-hmm. it wasn't about a task that I had to get done or plow through and and stuff. And so it just it, it really shifted things and it was like, no, this isn't about her trying to get my goat or push my buttons. She yeah. really doesn't remember. Right. That she said, right. this, but but I think most of us go there, going, they're just pushing my buttons. They know what's going to get me. You know, we make it about us, um, when that's yes. really, really, truly not the case. Um, now, do you have some tips to help people kind of to keep their cool in the moment when when things are getting emotional and a mm-hmm. little a little tough? Yeah, I do. I mean, I have one really big one that. I hope this will help people because, like you said, when you're getting that barrage with those questions, 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 or when you walk in and there's this mess on the floor or when, you know, she sits right there in the chair and loses her bowels or whatever, what, what, how can I keep my mind focused? And so there was one story. So what I always encourage people to do um, is have a story that you can just have right there in your little brain pocket and you can grab it whenever you need it. And for me, and it relates to what you just said about your mom. Is she happy, pain-free, and what was the other? Safe. Safe, happy, safe, happy, and pain-free. Safe, happy, and pain-free. It's kind of like that. So my mom, um, shortly after she moved into the assisted living, she started having these nosebleeds. And she would go to the emergency room. She went two or three times. And the last time she went, they actually admitted her. And she didn't know she was doing it. In fact, she insisted she was not doing it, but she was picking at her nose. Like the end, she must have had a scab and she was picking at it. You know how the nose just gushes blood. Yeah. Well, it was bleeding. Yeah, it was bleeding so bad that they admitted her. And so I got to the hospital and she was in her room because she had lost a ton of blood. It was the craziest thing. And I got to her room and she was sitting up and I sat down beside her. And they had packed her nose. Now, I've never had my nose packed, but for, from people that I've talked to that have had, like, sinus surgery or whatever, they, like, numb gauze mm-hmm. as deep as they can up inside their nose. And so I sit down beside her, and she's scared. And 
and I can tell that she's scared. And the nurse walks in, and my mom reaches up to touch because she knows there's something in there, and she doesn't understand what's in her nose. And the nurse looks at her, and she says, Miss Judy, I told you not to touch your nose. And my mom, like, leaned over, and I just get emotional every time I tell this story. She she leaned over, and she put her head on my shoulder, and I, like, kind of rubbed her head, and she was not really crying, crying. My mom always had a manipulative way of crying, but this mm-hmm. was different. It was just the quietest little tears, and I could tell that she was so scared and she had no idea what was going on and she didn't know why she was being yelled at. And it was like I was above the situation looking down because I thought, is that what I do to her sometimes? You know, is that how I make her feel? And in Mm -hmm. that moment, I realized that I never wanted her to feel that way again, ever, especially at my hand. And so Mm. whenever I would be in that situation, and again, like you said, there were times when I was snarky and, but I hope from that point forward anyway, more often I was able to grab a hold of that story and just bring myself down and remember, I never want her to feel that way again, especially at my hand. So I don't know if that's helpful, but it's what I did. No. And and I think it's really important because it's those moments where there's just, I think you see them so vulnerable. I mean, just so exceptionally vulnerable. And you have that connection of, uh, you know, I can do better than that. And, mm-hmm. and you know, it just makes you consciously aware if you were the one that initiated it, like I did with my mom when I saw how I reacted, you know, to her. And I just thought, oh, that's, it's so not me and it's so not fair to her. You know, or mm-hmm. if it was the nurse that came in, but being able to see and pick up on this is this is really different. This is severe, and and we can we can do better. Um, I, mm-hmm. I think that that's that's very very important. Um, now, you know, we've we've mm-hmm. talked about a lot of the bad times with your mom. I would mm-hmm. imagine hopefully you had some good times as well. I know you said you didn't remember as many as probably your sister did. Um, yeah. But what what were some of the, the good times that you had that you remember? Yeah, and there were, and you know what, I should have said earlier too, there is a there is a good ending to this story of my mom, by the way, but there were some fun times. And honestly, though, some of those, those bad behaviors continued. You know, they did. The, like I told you, the, the, the filth and the mess, and of course she had people to clean up after her, but a lot of the phone calls and a lot of those things continued. But throughout that, there were some really fun times. Like she lived right near a Dollar General. And so I would pick her up, I don't know, once a week or so. And we would just drive over to the Dollar General. And she would push that cart to the store and just be like, it's fine. I'm going to shop for a little while, even if it was just for cheese and crackers and whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, I remember we went to Arby's one time. And I think I posted pictures about this on Facebook. We went to Arby's. We were sitting, and this was in a small town. We were eating lunch, and it started pouring down rain. And, oh, wait, I'm sorry, it was when we got there. That's what it was. We got out of the car to go in, and the sky just opened up. And, like, three or four men came rushing over 
and and grabbed my mom's arm and took her cane and they just walked her right in there and were so sweet to her and even though she was drenched like a dog she felt like a queen I mean they Mm -hmm. just treated her like she was royalty um but the most fun thing you know if I can encourage if you do have a someone in your life who lives in assisted living or just any place where they do some fun things you know try to be a part of that because they had a prong mm-hmm. they had they had it twice while she lived there and my, two of my kids were in town my adult kids and we went to this prom and I have video we danced with her um, we ate with her and it was just the sweetest moment that I will never forget my kids mm-hmm. just that's what they instead of all the bad stuff that's what they remember with her is that time we went and we danced at the prom. It was the most amazing thing. Mm. So look for those, look for those big things like that and those little things because those are those are the things that you're going to grab onto when this loved one isn't here anymore. Don't you think? Oh, I, I definitely think so. I, you know, I've got some video of my mom uh, had a friend come in video and um, another gal who was a musician sing with her and I've got probably I don't know five or eight little snippets on my YouTube channel but when I can have the worst day in the world and I can go watch her in her end stages trying to sing and then she'd fall asleep but I can see you know, the smile, I can hear the giggle, I can see the glint in the eyes, I can see her hands sometimes move, and then poof, she's back to sleep, you know, um, but it makes my day, um, because I know Watching she was that. joyful, and we were able to capture that, so I think sometimes, too, you know, we, we all have our cell phones these days, capture those moments of joy, you know, yes. um, don't forget about them, you know, you take a picture, record a video or just an audio, um, but you'll be surprised how they can lift you um, in the future and, um, and just kind of keep that peacefulness. I think, you know, one of the things you had talked about with the boundaries was kind of finding that peaceful spot for yourself to maneuver all of this. And I think sometimes people forget about that there, it doesn't always have to be chaos that, there are some things that, that we can do as individuals to create that peacefulness or create that joy um, on, on the journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and look oh, for, well, and you just, you, you made me remember something too, just looking for, because when dementia is involved, there are some funny things. I mean, it's not, you know, sometimes there just are. And I remember my mom, I don't know where she got this stuff, but she had a whole drawer full of just miscellaneous, like one day she came out when I got there to pick her up and she had on a call light necklace. I don't know where it came from, but it was the, you know, just the red push button call light. (laughs) But she thought it was a beautiful necklace. And then she had a bracelet that was a hair scrunchie, but she was just like, look what I found. Look at my jewelry. And she just thought she had on this gorgeous, expensive jewelry and it was a call light necklace and a scrunchie. And I was like, Oh, you're beautiful. So that was (laughs) fun when she would do that. Not making fun, but it was fun. Well, I think, you know, part of the dementia journey is um, as they progress and, you know, not everybody, I think everyone thinks everything's end stages, wheelchair, can't talk and, and so forth. Mm But um, people are out there still driving cars, still working. They're at all different stages, but as the uh, progression 
goals, typically there's this there's this innocence that leads back to to childlike behavior. And some people get really upset about, you know, don't treat somebody childlike. Like I would have a, a saying with my mom, you know, after a while, crocodile. And, and, you know, we would just say that phrase back and forth. And that brought her mm-hmm. comfort. That brought her joy. It wasn't childish. That's just the space she was at. And, um, or, you know, coloring. I remember my daughter. Oh, when my she mom was colored too. Three. Go ahead, but my mom, yeah. my mom colors. Yeah, and and my daughter and my mom would color together, and I would come into the room, and I, I this is literally I couldn't tell who was prouder of their projects, my mom or my three year old. I mean, they just had a ball, and they were very connected. They had a lot of fun, and I think kids can teach us the beauty of innocence, of non judgment, of just just connecting. So tell us about your coloring with your mom. Well, and there were two things that came to mind. Yes, she she had probably four or five boxes of crayons, but my mom always loved to color. Um, but toward the end, I mean, every time I would come over, she would show me her coloring. And it, it's interesting that you that you talk about that childlike innocence because it can it it did give her peace and the the things that she did that you would think would be a children type activities, she loved and. Okay, one of the the great blessings, and if I ever wrote a book about mom, I would call it Healed Through Dementia for mm-hmm. several reasons. But one of them, she was always afraid to die her whole life. She she was afraid of everything. And one of the, the biggest fears she had was getting cancer. And she smoked for 45 years. She had COPD. Um, when we moved her out of my sister's house, she was wheelchair-bound, 24-7 oxygen, you know, she had had a heart attack and heart surgery and type 2 diabetes, all the obesity, um, lack of self-care related illnesses. She was diagnosed, I guess, about a year, maybe two years before, before she passed with lung cancer. But the good thing about the dementia was this is the way, so when you talked about, you know, when people say, well, don't treat somebody like a child or you need to be honest or, or whatever, I, my mom, I would just say, we would go to the doctor and she would say, do I have cancer? And I would say, yeah, but it's nothing. It's just a little old spot. It's no big deal. And she would say, okay. Every time we would go, do I have cancer? Yeah, but it's no big deal. It's nothing, you know, and she would be okay. And then she would just want to hug all the doctors. Yeah. But if I had been flat up front honest with her, it would have freaked her out. Yeah. And And so you know, you were just doing what I call a fiblet. You were making her comfortable um, because there's no sense in making them uncomfortable, making them feel unsafe, fearful, because that that they sometimes can't pull out of that, you know, because they don't have right. the, the logic to be able to do that. I love, you know, you know, when you're talking about the coloring, I, I think of my mom, how proud she was and how purposeful she felt and the, the comfort and the calmness that it gave her. And, you know, I think we have to look at, at those types of things, not the task, but how are they feeling and then replicate those things, you know, do things that will bring that same sense to them of, of comfort. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, again, I, I did a lot of things wrong for a long time. <clears throat> Little pieces came to me here or there. And I call, you know, I call that kind of the hybrid 
car e giver in, instead of caregiver, and the car stands for the conscious awakening of relationship, and the e giver mm. is about that emotional giving. You know, they always say it's not what you do, it's how you make somebody feel. And we all know that. We've heard it, but we don't live our lives by it. And I think oh, that dementia so and I think dementia demands that of us to become better, to you know, it's it's not about big, fancy and flashy anymore. It's just about real intimacy that almost takes on a, a spiritual aspect when you when you really walk the path together with them, when you really say these things don't matter, this, you know, it's, it's their soul essence, you know, letting me bring comfort to them because, and then learning to take when they're comfortable, mm-hmm. when they're happy, when they're joyous, then being able to breathe that in yourself. Yes. Step, I love that. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, well, go ahead. Well, just remembering that, this is a season, this will not last forever. And how do you want to look back on this time? You know, what Mm -hmm. you did and not that we're perfect, like you said, but, but when were the times when you really made this person in your life feel loved and safe and and accomplished in some way? Yeah. And that's what we all want. You know, I think it's seeing the similarities in us instead of the differences because we have a lot Mm -hmm. more, a, we are a lot more alike than we are different. And sometimes mm-hmm. when there's a diagnosis, um, you know, or it could be a cultural difference, we focus on those things instead of how, how we are all human at our core. Yes. And, you know, what is it that we want out of life? And it's it's really pretty simple. We all want to be mm-hmm. accepted and, and loved and feel purposeful. And a person mm-hmm. with dementia, no matter what their stage, can still can still have that. And, um, you know, it can get co- a little bit more complicated with an additional diagnosis like mental illness. But those moments yeah. are still there. You know, it can still, it can still happen. Um, well, this has just been a, such an interesting conversation. I want to talk a little bit, and we've kind of already dove into this a bit, about how compassionate care can affect someone Mm -hmm. suffering from dementia. But I know you have maybe some other thoughts that we haven't covered on that. Well, that is actually the really positive part of the story, and it's my favorite thing to talk about. Um, And that's why I do share the really bad stuff, because you're right. When there's the, the mental illness and dementia, for a long time it just morphed together. I didn't know what would do to what. Um, And there was the anger. And my mom had, on top of the mental illness, the anger and bitterness that she carried around. You know, for years, well, and actually until she died, she would never even speak my dad's name. Um, Just so angry and bitter. And then when, so we moved my mom into the apartment for my sisters. But then we made the decision that we needed to move her into, we moved her into an apartment complex. So it wasn't assisted living, but it was, it was a senior high rise and they, they contracted with a, like a home health group that just worked there. So those people would manage her medications, um, clean her apartment once a week, that kind of thing. But it, but it wasn't assisted living. She was Mm -hmm. so angry. Oh my gosh. And this was, this was as the dementia diagnosis. It's right around that time period. And so that's when we decided to move her in there because at least she would have someone to help her on a daily basis. 
she refused to go down to lunch. She refused to go down to dinner. She would not get up off of the sofa to go to the bathroom. When you walked into her apartment, the smell almost knocked you down. Um, She didn't really watch TV. She basically slept. Um, And I'm not blaming the people there. When I say what I'm about to say, don't, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just saying this is the way it was. The, the, the dietary team would just come into her apartment and put, they wouldn't wake her. They would just set her styrofoam container down on her table and leave. So there was no one there to encourage her. Um, I came over once a week. Um, I would put her in the wheelchair. I would take her to the store, to the doctor, whatever. And this is where sort of the boundaries, I wasn't mean to her. I was respectful, but I was sort of flat. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, mom, I'm here. Let's get up. Let's go. We would go to the store. We would go do whatever. We would come back. Um, and that was her life. Mm-hmm. The dementia progressed a little bit more. And we knew soon it was time to move her in. So I think it was 2013-ish, we moved her into Uh an assisted living about 30 minutes from my house. Um, Those people that worked in that assisted living, well, a couple things happened. The nose, you know, the the nurse story of being in the hospital. um, I started changing the way I interacted with her. My sister did. We tried to exhibit more patience and love and kindness but the women who worked in this assisted living they made her go to lunch they put Mm -hmm. her in a wheelchair they brought her down they made her go to dinner they made her go to bingo they made her if they had an outing to a restaurant they made her go um about six months after she was there now these people loved on her and they didn't have to they could have brought her lunch to her They did not have to make her do anything, but they did. They just took Mm -hmm. an interest in her. And about six months in, no wheelchair, no oxygen, um, she began laying her clothes out every night for the next day. She began getting out those weird beads that she would find on the floor and the call light bracelets and necklaces or scrunchies. And she became a completely different person for the last two years of her life. It was the most miraculous thing you would have never believed. She Now, part of the blessing of the dementia was she began to forget that she hated my father. Um, Mm -hmm. She began, and, and that was a blessing. But she became someone who those people in that facility looked to to get a hug, to get a compliment, to get a smile, and it all changed. And I attribute mm-hmm. a lot of that to the way that these people cared for her. It was a miracle. It just was. Wow. Wow. That's that's beautiful. Um, it was. Yeah, it really it really is very, very neat to, to hear that. Now, for families out there listening that are dealing with somebody who maybe has some mental health issues, that are maybe starting to see some changes and wondering if dementia is coming in, or maybe they're not even wondering if it's dementia because they don't even know what that is. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't. What are some tips for those family members in terms of who do they go to next? Um, to to mm-hmm. figure that out. Well, 
for me, I think the biggest thing, there was a little bit of a gap between the first time our doctor or her doctor mentioned possible dementia and then the time that we actually went to get her tested because I guess I did not know um, that there were significant difference between actual dementia versus these mental health behaviors. And so when we finally um, took the steps, and that's, that's the first thing I would recommend is, you know, ask your doctor. And if your doctor suggests that there might be something going on, it's, they sent us to the neurologist and there was, there was a very specific test that she took to at least indicate whether she, whether her memory was where it needed to be or whether she might be dealing with some early dementia. But it took mm-hmm. a while to, because because of this mental health versus dementia, it was like, eh, you know, she's always dealt with this kind of stuff. I don't mm-hmm. think that there's anything more we need to do. So really stay with your doctor. Um, tell your doctor all of the things. When I was reading the notes early on, there, it, it wasn't until it got to a certain point where we really revealed everything that was going on at home. So be honest, you know, mm-hmm. just be honest with your doctor. Allow your doctor to give you that advice. And, and if you don't trust your doctor, find another doctor. But if yep. you trust your doctor, then take those steps because the earlier, the better in getting that in any kind of a help, the earlier, yeah. the better so that you can have that life with that person. Yeah, and sometimes you might trust your doctor, but you're still not hearing the, the answer. It maybe isn't lining up for you. Your intuition is saying something's still off. It's okay to still, even if you have a great relationship with your doctor, to say, I just, I would like a second opinion, you know, or oh, can yeah. we can mm-hmm. we look further into that? I think sometimes people um, don't feel empowered to be able to do that or that they might offend the doctor. And it's like, this isn't about offending the doctor. This is about getting good quality care and making sure mm-hmm. diagnosis is right. And, you know, they can give a referral and if they really are um, a good doctor in, in your court, they shouldn't be offended by that, you know, and we'll refer you mm-hmm. out to an expert in that, in that area to help sort that out. Um, that's yes. my that's my thought anyways. <clears throat> I that. agree. And also, you know, the sooner you do it, the better. We haven't talked about this and we won't because I don't, but my father has been, he has Alzheimer's. My father does. We don't have as much of a relationship and there's no real thing I would want to talk about with him at this point. But there's very, there's like, you t- there's different types of dementia and some of them have treatments and unless you unless you go and and see what's going on with that family member, then you won't know how to help. Exactly. Exactly. And, and Mm -hmm. I would think Lewy body could be a really tough type of dementia to have with a mental illness because that has some hallucinations and some night terrors and things like that. And some of those drugs Mm -hmm. might not with one another. Sometimes people are given a drug for, um, for a mental illness and it can exasperate the, um, the, the type of dementia that they have. So even going to your pharmacist and having them, you know, ask for a review of your drugs because the pharmacists, um, the specialists there actually are better educated than our everyday doctors on interactions, you know, with medications oh, yeah. and stuff too. So that's something yeah, that's to, really good. 
to keep in mind. Well, Tammy, this has just been a fascinating conversation, and I so appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us. I think it's been extremely helpful, and um, I I just appreciate you being so authentic and honest. Um, I I know for a lot of families, this is a, a tough topic to talk about, and you you just spoke so um, authentically and not apologetic because you shouldn't feel ashamed or apologetic over what was happening. It's just your story, you know? And so I think that that's a really, really neat thing um, to be able to just talk the truth and um, to not, not be offended by it. Um, but this is your story, and we honor that here on Alzheimer's Speak. So people can get a hold Thank of you. you, and would you like to give them out your contact information that you'd like them to have? I would. I would love for you to. Um, my website has basically everything. It's TammyWest.com, and it's T-A-M-I-W-E-S-T.com. And on there, I have a link to my podcast, which is Consider Yourself Hugged. I have you know, the speaking information, the book information. Um, I do have uh, some blogs that I've written about, about mom and dementia. So I would just, my, my email, everything is on there. Please get in touch if there's, again, I'm not an expert, but I am happy to, to provide any, anything that I can that people need. So I'm just so grateful that you allowed me to be on the show. Yeah. Well, and I and love you what are, you do. Oh, love thank what you. you. Do. And you mm-hmm. are an expert. You you have, you're a lived expert, you know, through this. <laughs> yeah. And I and I think our journeys. Um, I mean, if you talk with people dealing with dementia, and probably mental illness too, um, they feel a lot of times it's the lived experience that is the richest that gives them ideas to live day to day, you know, with the disease, and also to not feel alone. Um, it's not, you know, you're not just spewing um, medical information at them. And, and not that that's not a good thing. We do need it. But sometimes it can overload families, too. And it's just nice to hear somebody else's story. So, again, reach out to Tammy West on her website there, uh, T-A-M-I, and then West, W-E-S-T dot com. She's also on uh, Facebook with Tammy West Seminars. And, um, yeah, and listen to her, her podcast, Consider Yourself Hugged. I love, I love that title. So, again, thank you again for spending time with us. I so, so appreciate uh, you taking this valuable time out of your day uh, to share with us your, your thoughts and your experiences. Oh, I am honored. Can't thank you enough. You're amazing. So I appreciate all you do. Thank you. In wrapping up, I want to also thank our listeners here. And just uh, again, um, please like, click, and share this. This is information people hear. And keep in mind, you could be our next listener. We'd love to hear your story. Everybody's got a story. So if it's regarding dementia and caregiving, you know, um, connect with me. Um, you can go to alzheimerspeaks.com. Again, there's a big uh, contact button there. You can email me or you can give me a holler and I will respond as soon as I'm able. And in the meantime, uh, make sure to check out our resources on alzheimerspeaks.com. We have um, lots of projects and initiatives I think you'll be interested in. And again, we're, we're always trying to raise everyone's voice. So let yours be the next. Have a blessed week, everyone. Bye now.
turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525.